Hey, podcast listeners, welcome back to now part two of our urban birding episode. We're going to kick off part two with our interview with David Lindo, the urban birder. And on this interview, Taiki James, frequent podcast guest host, joined me, Billy Brown, on our Skype conversation with Mr. Lindo. My name is David Lindo, and I am also known as the urban birder. Great. Thank you. And I'll start off with sort of my set of questions, and we'll hand it over to Taiki. So um, why cities? Why, why burden cities, and why make that your focus? Um, it was a, a happy accident, I suppose, because I have always been interested in natural history since I was born, uh, for no apparent reason, because none of my family friends or their friends or whatever you had any interest. I was raised in a predominantly black and Irish neighbourhood in northwest London, and I just had this interest, so I developed it myself. But I was always told that you couldn't see wildlife anywhere in a city. You have to go out in the countryside. And of course, as a kid, I believed that, thinking, oh, when am I ever going to get to the countryside? So I had no option but to notice wildlife around where I lived. And initially, it was bugs. Um, they're the things that got me really interested and curious. And I used to collect different types and keep them all in the same area and watch them eat each, eat each other. <laughs> but, then, but then I got interested because I used to go to my primary school around the corner and I used to bring new bugs in from there and with them I brought flora which I didn't intend to but then I started growing a weed patch which I never realized and then that in turn attracted birds and it was from that I suddenly obviously realized that birds are much more obvious but I didn't know what they were called so I just called them as I saw them baby birds or sparrows mummy birds starlings that kind of thing and um and the interest kind of developed from there and I went to the library and I I took a book out which was about the birds of Britain, Europe, Middle East, and North Africa. And I was so excited seeing, you know, 2,000 species all kind of listed out and broken down and images and stuff. I couldn't believe the number of birds. And um, and I was reading this book inside out, back to front, sideways, upside down. I took it to my school. I was known as bird brain by my friends because... I read it during my lessons, and I, I think I did my 10,000 hours by the time I was eight, because by that point I was a work, walking encyclopedia. I knew everything about all the birds of that region, even though I'd seen hardly any of them. But I just had this fascination. And it wasn't just birds, it was also the general fauna. You know, Interestingly, I was at um, a talk, uh, I gave a talk at the weekend at the Travel Adventure Show in London, and I was asked to talk about Peru, urban birding in Peru. And it made me remember something, because I don't rehearse talks, I just turn up. And, uh, turn up. It made me remember one thing. I, my mum bought me this book, really big book. At least it was book big to me as a small kid. And it was about uh, the animals of the Americas. And I remember looking at animals and birds in North America, thinking, wow, this is amazing. And then looking at the birds and animals of South America and thinking, this is, you know, weird names and ocelots and all that sort of stuff you know it's just fascinating me but anyway so I, I, I kind of began to have a, a knowledge worldwide which I've retained to this day really. Great and uh, you know you, you've just mentioned Peruvian cities you're in Spain right now is there a city in particular that when you say oh I went birding there that people are particularly amazed by um, and 
is there a city where people are, are most impressed by, let's say, your list or what you've you've seen when you've been birding there? That's a very good question. It's also a very difficult one to answer because there isn't any one city, and plus, cities have different meanings for different people. So, for example, when I go to when I'm in London, people think about London, and now I think it's more accepted that London has a lot of green spaces. So, you know, you expect to see things. But I don't go to places that people go to normally. So, for example, people might go to Hyde Park, Kensington Gardens, which is equivalent to Central Park in New York, for example. I go on top of rooftops in the middle of the financial district. I like to visit areas like my local patch in West London. It's a great example because I went there 24 years ago and it was just a green blob on the map on the A to Z. But I explored it and... Okay, a lot of it's playing fields. People play soccer and stuff there. But there's also areas there that I I found interesting. And over the years, they developed, and I managed to get to the the council and get them to sort of manage the area for wildlife with other people as well. And now, you know, 150 species later, some of them rarities, not only in London but national rarities, the, the site is now on the map. But to me, it's all about looking, you know, because every city, and I've not been to one city yet that hasn't got some kind of interest, hasn't got some kind of fascination for me. Um, I go to places like, you know, in America, for example, Los Angeles. I used to go to Los Angeles every year for 13 years because I worked with a director that made videos and commercials, and I was his assistant. So whenever he went to L.A., he'd often spend between a week and three months there, and I'd do the same as well. And whilst I was there, I, I went off and I found myself local patches. And during the course of the 13 years, I found a whole host of species that when I met with fellow L.A. birders, they'd say to me, oh, I, never, I didn't know people even went there birding. Do you know what I mean? Because you, you find things. To me, I mean, it's like with migration. I think migration is one of the easiest examples to give people who don't understand people think about migration they think oh you have to go somewhere special you have to be at a headland somewhere you have to be in a specific place where all these birds turn up and okay they do turn up in those places but migration um happens across a broad front not just in specific famous places so when i'm in london or when i'm in any city if i hear but there's migration going on on the coast i don't go to the coast i stay in london and i look at my local patch because that migration, even though it's a microcosm, microcosmic version of what happens out in the main, main sort of uh, migration areas, you still, you still see examples of migration. So all I'm trying to say when I'm talking to people about urban birding is that anything can turn up anywhere at any time. And there's also a lot of stuff to be seen, even in places, the most unlikeliest of places. Neat. Okay. So, hey, Taiki, I'm going to hand it over to you. Go ahead. All right, awesome. So uh, one of the first things is because I get it sometimes. I've you know I've been with Tony, or like if I'm out birding with someone, I always think about this in the back of my mind. But have you always been? Have you ever been confused with someone who's lost? Because you know I'm pretty sure urban birding, you've you've gone to places where you're looking around and you know you're you're looking up and you know does someone look at you and like just like immediately and they're just like, are you lost? That's a good, you know what, I've never really thought about it that way, but I've been, you know, people say to you, sorry, can I help you? Um, Because I don't realize you're a birder. Um, I remember once being in um, Slovakia in Eastern Europe, 
and I was birding um, off the beaten track and I came across what seemed like a campsite for junkies because lots of syringes and stuff there. And I thought, you know what, I better head out of this area. And as I was walking out, I noticed behind me there was a, a Range Rover, a uh, Land Rover coming towards me quite quickly. And I was getting a bit nervous and the thing stopped behind me, out jumped two big guys and speaking in Serbian. And basically they were saying, what are you doing here? And it turned out they were undercover police. And I was trying to say, I'm, I'm a birder and I'm English, you know. And I didn't have any idea on me. So it was, but anyway, they kind of believed me in the end. So that's been the most extreme version of that, I suppose. But um, I don't actually get those kind of questions. I get more, if anything, looks. People look at you as if, as if to say, what are you doing here? But never, it's very rare, but I actually say to you, what are you doing here? Are you lost or can I help you? But it's rare. You know, those kind of like small things, do you ever, or even, you know, I guess that's a really wild situation, but even with the smaller things, you ever feel offended? Like, um, you know, you're, you might be with someone and then that someone that you're with sees, sees these looks that you get and like, you know, do you get offended of that? And like, how do you handle it? Like, you know, uh, if, if you see it, if you're observing it, if you're like in the observation of you, you know, all these people are giving you weird looks to them for whatever reason, you're like an unfamiliar face. You're an unfamiliar person doing this unfamiliar thing. You know, how does that settle in the back of your mind? And, and is there someone that you talk to about it? Like, do you, have you ever reflected on this experience or those kind of experiences or thoughts with someone? Um, I've been burning since I was a kid. And when I was young, um, there was a lot of racism. Um, so you, I used to be called names routinely. And my attitude has always been... You know, I just find it amusing because I find it sad that someone has to call someone a name. And I say to them, look, can't you think of anything specific for me? You know, it's a very generic name you're calling me, which could apply to anyone. Why can't you think of something for me? Which normally makes them sort of shut up. But I mean, And then in the last, say, 20 years or so, or certainly since the 80s, I don't get... I mean, you get people looking occasionally, but... I don't really think about it anymore. I just think to myself, you know, have a look. I might wave at them even, you know. I confront it. I don't sort of worry about it because at the end of the day, it's not me with the problem. Um, and sometimes those looks are purely curiosity, you know. It might be because I'm a blackbird walking through the streets of Serbia looking at owls. But then when you say hello to people, they, they say, oh, well, hi, hello. It doesn't really bother me so much because I don't really think about it anymore like that. Any, you know, I did when I was younger. And in those days when I was younger, I, in terms of confiding with people or being with people, I, nine and a half times out of ten I was with someone white. And they would say to me, that's disgusting, what have you. And I would say, well, that's how it is. Fine. You know, that's their problem. I never really worried about it, to be honest. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Because that's something that, like, uh, at times I feel like I come across because I'll be – you know, with Tony or, or, you know, one of Tony's friends. And normally I'm like, not only my black, but I'm also like the younger birder. And like, you know, I can see that they're looking like, what is like something here is not the same among this group. And, you know, for the most part, I just ignore them. Cause I'm just like, I'm doing what I love doing and I happen to be good at it. So, yeah, you know, kick rocks. All right. So uh, how do you feel about minority interest groups? And uh, what about one for birding? Like if there was a birder, a national, a global birders group, there would be like a black birders group. Do you think like those kind of the existence of uh, groups like that, and should there be one for birding? Like, is there? Yeah, yeah. Is there a justified existence for uh, you know 
uh, minority interest groups, and should there be one for burning? I just want to insert really fast that there's a group that we follow on Twitter called Afro Outdoor. Um, yeah. Go ahead with the question because it's, it's, it's a good question. Yeah. Um, you know what? I've, I've thought about that a lot, um, and especially coming to America, as I have in the last few years, and I've, I've actually hung out with the outdoor Afros, for example. I think in Britain it's a different scenario because, you know, things are very different in America. I think if I look back, if I'd be honest and be brutal about it, I think, you know, stuff like slavery is still is still sore with some people because it's in th- that lineage of family. You know, people probably have great-grandmothers, great-grandfathers or, or older, you know, relatives that were slaves at one point. Whereas in Britain, we're kind of removed from that because, for example, my family came from Jamaica. So I was brought up in Britain. Uh, we had our own problems there, but to me, our problems are nothing compared to the problems that black people faced and make and still face in in America. So I come from it from a different angle. I don't I don't have the the history. Yeah, I do have the history, but I haven't got the direct history that some people in America have. So when I come, for example, when I first came across black groups, I was thinking, well, that's not how I do it because for me in Britain. I talk to everyone. Everyone's a group. And when I speak to kids and take urban kids out, you know, I'm taking black, white, Asian, I'm taking everyone out. I'm not taking one specific group out. And, and I mean, I, I, just on a broader subject now, talking about the Oscars, for example, and in Britain, some of the black actors have been saying, and black people in TV have been saying that, you know, there's not enough opportunities, opportunities for black people. And that is true. But my view is also slightly different because I think to myself, I'm not going to form a, a black theatre group or black group because to me that's not the way to, to move forward. And the way to move forward is to push yourself forward and be in an arena that, that was essentially white. And I think that's what I've done in my life because I'm young and I'm still to this day the only black um, wildlife presenter in Britain. There's a couple of other black people they've now used occasionally, but they're not, they're not necessarily wildlife people. They're just black presenters that they might use occasionally to touch on various aspects of natural history. But I'm the only one. But the, the, the way I got there was to forget about my colour, but even though I knew that I was black and I knew that you can use it in a positive way. And I know, for example, when I first started presenting 10 years ago, my agent, who I had then actually turned around to me, he was white, and he turned around to me and said, the only reason why I've t- taken you on board is because you're black. If you were white, I wouldn't have taken you. So it was actually positive discrimination. And I got um, opportunities on the BBC, and I'm sure to this day it was primarily because I was black, because I was an oddity, because I'm unusual, because you know I'm a black guy talking about birds, which is a white person's domain, and certainly in the UK, and I'm, I'm sure it's, well, it's obviously the same in the US. So I thought, but if I became, if I just waited in a group, waited for someone to come to me and say, look, we need to pick one of you guys, I'd be waiting forever. I think sometimes you have to stick out, put your neck out and say, right, you know what? I'm black, fine, but that's, just, that's it. I'm going to carry on and I'm going to operate in, in everyone's world, in, in you know, the world that is out there. And that's why I'm worried sometimes when people form groups because then it becomes a little almost ghettoized in that it doesn't branch out other than within the actual community. 
And I know that's important to have groups within the community because obviously you need, especially in America, to get uh, minorities feeling that they can be empowered to do, you know, things like get out in the countryside and, and, and study birds and do that. But you also need to break through and become a role model, I suppose, and become and just do it and just become accepted within the actual environment, even though you're black. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? I'm just, yeah. it's hard to articulate because I don't really normally articulate this. I don't, I mean, I've been thinking about it recently, but I've never had the opportunity to talk about it as such. Because, for example, in my schooling, my, in my schooling, I'm in Britain, in London, um, and I think this has been sort of born true or, or seen to be true ever since, that black people were kind of made to think that they were not achievers. And as such, if you look at the statistics, you find that many black males just didn't achieve at school. And I'm sure, I'm sure it's the same in the US, but certainly in the UK, they didn't achieve in school and they just didn't, you know, didn't get that far. Whereas Asian males and even African males, because I'm talking about Afro-Caribbeans now, but African males performed better because they, for some reason, had, some, um, had more kind of drive or some dri- driven by their parents or they've, you know, they've done more in their lives in terms of a community and they progressed more. So what I'm trying to say is I'm just I'm just I'm worried when people form groups because I want I want people to push out and become come empowered but involving everyone, not just having one group. So that's a broad I know I'm probably rambling a bit now, but that's my broad kind of feeling about the whole group thing. But having said that, as I said, America's a separate uh, situation and I've I've been involved with with uh, the outdoor afros, I think they're doing and other groups are doing like yourselves because without a group these people will never be involved in the first place and sometimes you need to have a group in order for these people to feel safe to then branch out so maybe it's a necessary thing to do but in the uk that kind of stuff doesn't exist really not certainly not in natural history thank you thank you that's a really that's a really great answer i don't i don't think you were rambling <laughs> that was really great um so here's a more lighthearted question if you could have a superpower for 24 hours, what would it be? Um, um, this superpower is for, for burning, is it? I mean, it, just it, for you, for, for, David, okay. for David Lindo, anything. If I had a superpower for a day, my, my latest kind of um, hankering is to have a, the ability, when I'm out burning, to spot, I have a radar in, in my head that I can spot DNA around me so I know what's around me, so I can actually say there's, and there's an autumnal oriole in that tree. You can't see it, but it's there. I'd love to be able to tell exactly what's around me and be amazing, and I'll be a hero, and I can find the Eskimo curlew again. Um, I'd love to go to, Alaska, uh, to Canada, Arctic, to Arctic Canada, um, at the right time of year and use my power to find the uh, Eskimo curlew or go down into Louisiana and find the uh, ivory bill woodpecker. Um, I ask you, uh, what can you learn from birding that you can't learn anywhere else? I think birding for me, when I go out birding, it's a great way of, of collecting thoughts and thinking of, of ideas. I find myself being very creative when I'm birding. You know, I think of what I can be doing and how to, how to have solutions for, for problems that I'm trying to work out. It's meditation. And meditation's a good thing because I've been birding when, for example, depressed or you're broken up with a girlfriend or something. And it's a great healer for me. Mm. I think 
it also brings you down to earth when you look at a creature that has no concept in terms of looking at its watch or having to go to a meeting or what have you. It's just living its life. And I think it brings you down to earth and makes you realise where you fit in with everything. Birding has shaped my life without any question. I am not the person I am today without, without the birding aspect. Birding has meant that I've met some fascinating people, yourselves included. I've, you know, I've travelled various places, and that's because of birds. You know, 10 years ago when the urban bird was born. By the way, it's the urban bird's birthday this year. Oh, uh, ah, yay. <laughs> um, when the urban bird was born, I'm so grateful that I, I kind of realised that it wasn't just about watching birds. In fact, it's about, for me, it's about people. It's about connecting with people. The birds come second. For me, birds is a great way of connecting with people. For me, it's a great way of sharing, I know it sounds corny, but sharing love. You know, you've you got a love for, for nature, and I love sharing that love with other people, especially people who are seemingly sceptical at first. And I love the idea of seeing them over a period of time warm to the idea that, you know, nature is great. And I love it when they email you back and said, you know, after being out with you, I've seen this, I've seen that, I've seen... And it's just great to hear that because then you realise that, you know, you're spreading something and that's been, you know, spread again by other people. So it's, it's, it is a love that you're, you're, you're spreading around. Thank you so much. That, that was a really good answer. dovetail well with David Lindo's conversation, where I think a lot of environmental movement, a lot of sort of science education movements are trying to or try to work around or try to figure out ways to engage people aside from, let's say, the stereotypes of a white suburban nature lover. And in a place like Philadelphia, which is minority white city, where you have... Not true. Not true? I thought it was... Well... Between, if you count... Oh, you, I guess like minority white. It's still the biggest population, but it's the yeah, slightly between biggest. African Americans and Latinos. Are yeah. even, so it's, but it's it's not. It isn't. Um, I don't know, like Lower Marion, but it's right. it's a great place to try to think of how to engage minority populations or lower income populations or both. Take Strawberry Mansion, kids who kids are adults who might not see themselves in the national profiles of the organizations or national types of people usually get involved. And so I think it's something to talk about because I think everyone in this room, I mean, you guys more so than me, I'm not much in terms, I, I do a little bit, but you guys do this for a living, um, get out and engage Philadelphians in nature and in environmental education. I wanted to hear your thoughts on how you take something where the local kids might not see themselves if they go to the usual bird outing or birding outing elsewhere, how do they get engaged and sort of see themselves in this how does a young nerd <laughs> pick up the binoculars and, and hook in well I think having for us having the, uh, the, it's the, the name of our center is a discovery center having a discovery center partner with Outward Bound is a strategic move that I think is going to be very helpful because Outward Bound already has great appeal to all kinds of people in Philadelphia and is yeah. already engaged with a lot of different schools. So they will be bringing lots of diversity into the center already because of their programming. And we hope that 
once people are at the center for Outward Bound programming, that they'll also be able to get interested in some of the, or be exposed to some of the things that we're doing, and that will help to expose, you know, a lot more different people to, to birds. And um, of course, because we're located right there in Strawberry Mansion and within walk, and you know, so within walking distance of a number of schools and um, anyone who lives in Strawberry Mansion can, can come to the center. We're hoping that by providing services to the, the neighborhood uh, in, the ter- in terms of infrastructure, there will be rooms and, and opportunities for people who um, live and work in Strawberry Mansion to use the center for meetings and other activities. We're hoping that it will be part of the neighborhood and a place that people come to and, and want to use. We know that a lot of people that live in Strawberry Mansion that are of a certain age use or remember a time when they could access the reservoir grounds. And so there's still a desire on their part to come back and be able to explore the, the, the site yeah. and bring their children. So right now, I'm very encouraged to think that there will be a lot of people from the neighborhood that use the, the site. Other than that, we have educators that are going to be um, going out into lots and lots of schools in Philadelphia and you know, working with all kinds of people throughout the city. So as an organization, um, we are very committed, just like Outward Bound is, to serving all the people of Philadelphia. Well, my side of things with Parks and Recreation, so you'll hear Keith mention Fairmount Park. So originally, um, all the natural lands, green spaces, and even the major manicured parks were, even if they had a different name, like Wissahickon or Pennypack or Cows Creek, they were all in the umbrella of the Fairmount Park Commission. So you, there is a park called Fairmount Park, uh, and it's East and West Fairmount Park, and Keith's... Um, Center is in, in East Fairmount Park, but and when I saw him earlier uh, when I first saw Keith, he's like, "Oh, how's how's Fairmount Park?" Even though I work up in the Woods of Hicken, so <laughs> some people still call the whole system Fairmount Park. Which it got is, merged together with, but it got Park. merged together with the Recreation Department. So yeah. now we're Parks and Recreation, and what's great with you know, and the upside of that merger is now um, they just put kids in rec centers on buses and you know and take them or, or and take them straight to us yeah. to either you know Penny Pack or Woods of Hicken. So we get kids from all over the city, and they come for programs. And I just spent the other than the three weeks of our own summer camps, I spent the entire summer with uh, kids from rec centers coming every day. Uh, currently, right now, I have a limp. My feet are hardly sunburned. My <laughs> I can't uh, fully f- like uh, close my, my leg. Like I can't bend my knee. Like I am. My other it's your first year on the job. Man. I am. I got destroyed <laughs> this summer. So that, that's what we do. We, we you know, uh, we go to schools a little bit, but our, our main, our main focus is you know we have ten thousand acres of natural lands. We, we want kids out in in our park, so yeah. they, they come to us. That's our that's our main focus. And um, I think that one of the good upsides of the parks, environmental centers being where they are, is the fact that once you get out there, you're really removed from your familiar surroundings and it gives people a different experience perhaps than they've had before you know not having the roads or familiar things or sounds around you really forces you to sort of pay attention to different things than you might have before but even if we had um, 
two or three more environmental centers in Philadelphia, I think there would still be way more people to serve than we could. Oh, yeah. So we need um, all of them. To highlight something that I find fascinating about you, we're talking about walking places, taking public transportation. How do you get around to your burning sites? Do you Don't you mean us? Both of you, actually. Yeah, you, you, well, neither of you owns a car. Tony and I both <laughs> live what I call green lifestyle. And we use public transportation. We use our feet. You know, I use Tony uses his bike. Yeah. It's, it's really, I think, I think it's a good thing. Um, it, it, it can get you to really explore the city in a different way than when you have a car. And so I think we both love the city. We both love, you know, a lot of birding sites in the city. And uh, it's fun being able to walk or ride buses or whatever to get around various places. So this is something that I put to David Lindo early in that conversation about why urban, why be the urban birder? I mean, I, I'm not a birder. I'm what we call a herper. You know, I look for reptiles and amphibians, but still people who do what I do, you head for the mountains, you head for the pine barrens. Your first thought is not, I'll go check out that vacant lot. It's for me now, but like, not I'll go check out that vacant lot in the city, or I'll go check the park over there. Like, make the case for birding in the city. Like, Keith is also on the bird for the committee. Good point. Okay. Although he, 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 well, I, I assist in various ways, but Tony's really the nuts and brains. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you guys can tra- decide who's more responsible, but, well, but yeah, I, I, I like because I do because I did bird Philly some other things. People are always like, man, you're like Mister. Bird in Philly. I'm like, no, that's Keith Russell. <laughs> He's just famously soft-spoken and not interjecting himself into like lots of public situations like I am. But I'm like, it's it's Keith Russell and Frank Winnefeller and then me. But Frank is a, a bit of a unusual character to say the least, and we love him for it. But yes, yeah. But so make the case of somebody who spends their time going down to Cape May and and up to Hawk Mountain or wherever else you go. Like, why well, Bird Philly? The the bottom line is this. There are 300 plus species of birds that have been recorded in Philadelphia. And um, more than New York. <laughs> Tony just mentioned one of our illustrious uh, local birders, former president of the Delaware Valley Ornithological Club, Frank Winfelder, who um, did a big year in, in Philadelphia. And he wanted to see how many species he could find in one year, one calendar year in the city. And I believe he found over 240 species. So that's a lot of birds in one small, you know, area like the city of Philadelphia. Yeah. We're not the city of New York, which has all the, which is really a bunch of cities combined into yeah. one place. And, um, you know, much of the city is very highly urbanized. But it is possible to see all kinds of things here in the city, still sandpipers, Connecticut warblers, even yellow rails <laughs> have been found yeah. here. And um, these aren't things that just pop up every blue moon. Every year there's a bunch of rarities that are seen, you know, all seasons. And uh, Tony can talk much, very, you know, fluently about that. Um, and people come to the city sometimes to see these things. What people don't understand is that there are a huge number of different types of species of birds that occur regularly in Philadelphia. And this is not just people who aren't birders. A lot of birders didn't understand this. So I think that some events that we have had, like the Philadelphia Midwinter Bird Census and the Philadelphia Breeding Bird Census, which Tony is um, and Matt Haley are in charge of. Well, let's be clear. This was inspired by <laughs> Keith's 
did the Midwinter Bird Census. Yeah, we thirty years, <laughs> and it, that's completely inspired us to do ours. <laughs> okay, so we we respectively run these different bird censuses, and we've been the Midwinter Bird Census has been around for thirty years. But doing these things is very important. It's just a census that occurs within the city limits. So no one can say, oh, those birds you got, some of them were outside the city. They're all within the city. And they have demonstrated that there's a huge variety of species here consistently year after year. And they've also drawn attention to the places that these birds are at. And I remember, you know, 25 years ago, Roosevelt Park in South Philly wasn't a place people would go to look for birds. Um, FDR. Yes, uh, park, which is um, aka the lakes, yeah, right. And now it's a place that's a destination for a lot of people. I think these censuses have helped to draw attention to what's there, and that's what both of us, Tony and I, want to do: is to help people to understand, you know, the rich uh, variety of birds that you can find in the city. Another thing about um, urban birding that I think is really important is that. As time goes by, the number of places on Earth that are affected by humans uh, is just going up. And by that I mean places that have been developed into cities or urbanized in some way. Um, So birds have to deal with this because more and more the Earth is, is like this. And as we look at birds in cities, what we're doing is we're observing not just what birds are there, but how they're adapting to urbanization. And this isn't something that classically trained ornithologists focus on very much. Um, so there are some very interesting and important things to learn about how birds are going to be able to survive in the future by looking at what's going on right now in cities. And one of the things that I thought was really fascinating um, that David Lindo um, has observed in Europe are like these kittiwakes, which are these gulls that breed on the cliffs, not cliffs, but ledges on um, bridges. You know, you're used to seeing kittiwakes on ledges on these big, you know, barren islands and rock outcrops in the middle of the ocean or somewhere far from people. Literally on like the sides of volcanoes in Iceland and stuff like that. Yeah, and you hear these these kittiwakes in cities on these, you know, these ledges. It's it's fascinating. It's just like pigeons taking... You know, to buildings, yeah. and and this is the future. The future is going to be made possible by these birds adapting their you know ways of life to take advantage of these um, opportunities and resources and so on in cities. Chimney swifts yeah. uh, used to breed in hollow trees, and now they breed almost exclusively in chimneys and buildings. So that's an old story, but there are new stories that are occurring all the time. Synanthropic organism. So I think urban birding is not only fun, um, but it's important scientifically to see what things are happening to birds, how they're adapting, and also what threats exist to birds in cities, like the glass problem on buildings, which is, you know, killing Tons and tons of birds. Um, I want to ask, how did you get into birding? Like, how did, what point did you pick up binoculars and say, this is what I want to do? I was, uh, what my earliest memory of being interested in birds was being in the third grade at the C.W. Henry School in Mount Airy. 
and giving a report to my class about <laughs> birds, I remember it vividly. <laughs> but I have no understanding of how I got interested in birds before okay. that. Um, it was just one of those things that, you know, some kids just magically get an interest. But sometimes something happens and you get interested. I don't know how I got interested, but my parents, fortunately, didn't think it was a bad thing and didn't discourage it. So they got me some binoculars, some sears, and they got me, you know, connected with other people they found in the neighborhood that were interested in birds. And that was, that was, it was great. All right. So, yeah. I know you live now in Germany. I mean, you live now in Germany. Germany. Now. And yeah. so, but you grew up in Mount Airy. Just blocks, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but these are neighboring away. neighborhoods. But yeah. they, he, he has a fortune living very close to the park that I work in, Lewis Hagen. Ah, yes. So there's an 1,800 acres of paradise. Yes, we're, yes. We're very blessed in Philadelphia to have all these sections of Fairmount Park that are, you know, basically like wildernesses um, that we can often walk to from our homes or get to very quickly from our homes. But in any case, we failed to do some of our get in touch with us kind of stuff at the beginning. So there are ways that you can uh, reach out to us and follow us. We're on Twitter at Herb Wildlife Cast. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, we have a website, urbanwildlifecast.com, and a Gmail address, urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Uh, send us a note. Uh, we're still on the lookout for... Wildlife bling. For people to, to, if you're out there in podcast land, that means probably on your phone listening on your phone on your commute or in your car if you're in a city and if you're a nature lover which is highly likely if you're listening to this podcast and you are looking at something in your city maybe you found the other yellow rail in philadelphia or you are looking at how do you say kitty winks kitty, kitty wakes kitty, kitty wakes, wakes. i believe it's a what do you call it like an automatic word okay like a, a, a they're named word. after the call yeah yeah so if you're looking at Kitty Wakes in a city in Europe, um, or as I always like to bring up, you're looking at cockatoos in some Australian city, uh, and you want to whip out your phone and record a little note for 30 seconds or a couple minutes, um, we'll be happy to include it on the podcast. Are you hearing a dog from outside right there? Enthusiastically endorsing the wildlife bling. And so that's about it. So we thank Keith for making the trek from Germantown to West Philly. And anything else you want to... Life is good. <laughs>